Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. He kōna i pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora, no mai harumai ki te Hello and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Kraken Cannon tēnei. Winter is here and that means snowy mountains. So this week we're diving into the science of snow with a 2016 episode from Alison Balance and Katie Gossett. Let's hit the slopes of Mount Ruapehu to find out more. Snow is amazing! Building a snowman. Building a snowman. You can slide on it and you can play snowball fights. So what do you think of snow? What do you like about it? Uh, it's the softness. It's white. I like that it's cold. I like, I like the consistency of it. Different kinds of snow. Hard snow, soft snow. Yeah. I like that you can eat it, you can throw it at people, you can ski it, you can snowboard it. Do you ever think about the snow and how it forms and what it's doing when it's on the ground? No, I actually don't. I thought it just hail would come don't, down. Don't look too far into it, eh? Yeah. <laughs> hey, no. We didn't learn about that in science, did we, Ollie? Or have you learned about that? I won't look too much into it. <laughs> what do you like about snow? Ooh, I like skiing it. And the science of it. Hey everyone, I'm Alison Balance. And I'm Katie Gossett, and welcome to The Science of... Snow. Now where are we going in this podcast, Alison? We're going skiing. At the Turoa Ski Field on Mount Ruapehu. Alison, is it? It is, Alison. How Brendan. are you? Good cool. to meet you. They call me Bendy up here. <laughs> what do you reckon? Ah, uh, should be a pretty good day. We're in a bit of a Mount Free cycle at the moment, so some of the off-piece stuff, it's going to be... Uh, pretty slick underfoot but the sun's out the wind's pretty light and it's coming in from the east so uh should soften up nicely some good spring corn skiing excellent well i'm looking forward to you being my snow expert for all the good all good <laughs> that's brendan nisbet and he's in charge of the tura ski patrol he's also an avalanche forecaster and boy does he know lots about snow now, Katie, when he talks about the melt freeze cycle there, that's a fine piece of Kiwi understatement. What he really means is that the ski area is very icy first thing on a spring morning. We're off to find a patch of snow that's actually soft enough to dig a hole in. And on the way, I'm finding out just how many kinds of snow you can get and how different they all are. Chalky, squeaky, powdery, icy. <laughs> yep, slide for life. And we'll go over there, we'll put the, uh, the microphones on and we'll feel a little bit how this snow, if you were to ski it, it would sound like that. And then we'll find some ice over there and we'll, we'll let you know how that one feels.
that was the sound of Bendy glissading down a really icy slope. We don't like stuff like that. We prefer stuff that sounds more like this. Now that was the sound of nice chalky snow. So Alison, just before we go any further, just to get down to the basics here, what is snow? I'm going to pass that one straight on to our snow experts. Oh, and by the way, as well as Bendy, who's our guide to snow on the ground, I've also enlisted Eric Brentstrom and Gerard Barrow from the Met Service. They're both extreme weather forecasters. So boys, what is snow? Snow is crystallisation of water that's been in the atmosphere. It's ice particles falling from the sky. Snow are ice crystals. Snowflakes are a collection of ice crystals. So what about hail? Because surely that's frozen water as well? A distinction should be made from hail, which is also ice, but hail starts life as, as raindrops, which then freeze. So a big part of the difference between snow and hail, I've learned, is how they form. And I just love this next bit. Snow doesn't have a liquid phase. It is an ice crystal formed when water gas in the air changes directly to solid without going through a liquid phase. Now for this to happen, it turns out, you need a secret ingredient. To get an ice crystal, what is needed is something which is called an ice nuclei which is often a tiny piece of clay, but can sometimes be a small piece of bacteria. We used to think that it was dead bacteria, but research in the Northern Hemisphere has found that sometimes it's actually live bacteria. So hang on, you're telling me that snow is potentially alive? Yeah, not exactly, but it could have living microbes in it, along with that dust, of course. And the thing with these little particles called freezing nuclei is they mimic the shape of an ice crystal and that makes it easier for the molecule of water floating in the air to lock onto them and then for a subsequent molecule to lock on and then the crystal will grow. And how about this snow fact? The shape of every single snowflake is six-sided, a hexagon. Now this process of really cold water gas Instantly freezing around that little nuclei, that little seed, if you like, is what the weather folk call deposition. Makes sense, eh? Water is being deposited on something. And so that's it? So now we have our snowflake? Not quite. The fun's just starting. There's an optimal temperature range where ice crystals can grow. It's called the dendritic zone. And this tends to happen up in the sky where the temperature's around about minus 20 down to about minus 10. So this zone is a bit of a snowmaking factory. It's round about 10 kilometres up above the Earth's surface and it's a sweet spot where there's enough water gas in the air, where the temperature is not too hot and not too cold. Minus 15 Celsius is apparently just right. There's lots of bits of clay and probably bacteria for the ice crystals to form around and then, like a James Bond martini, it needs a good shaking. If the upward motion is reasonably strong, it may actually lift the ice crystal higher into the sky. It's gravity that's trying to drag the ice crystal down, but if you've got the air moving up because it's in a depression or it's the air blowing against the Southern Alps and being lifted, it has to grow to a certain sort of size to actually fall faster than the air is going past it. So there's a little bit of a game about the thing getting big enough to fall. 
and then on the way down it can bump into other snowflakes and they can hold hands. So sometimes what reaches the surface is quite a, a big flake made up of thousands of little flakes that are all touching each other and joined together. OK, so just checking, I've got all of this straight. These baby snow crystals start off really small and light. They get tossed around up in the air as if they're in a really cold clothes dryer. And as they go round and round, more water vapour is attaching to them, yeah? And they're also sticking to each other and starting to grow. Yeah, exactly. And that's how a snowflake is born. Oh, and there's a name for that bumping into each other and holding hands stage. Which sounds to me like adolescence. <laughs> and so what we normally see are actually snowflakes. They're a collection of ice crystals that's called aggregation. And so they continue to aggregate until they sort of reach the surface. Katie, now that we've got some snowflakes to the ground, let's pop back to Ruapehu and catch up with our snowman, Bendy, again. He's going to show us what they do every morning to assess the avalanche risk. I found something pretty south-facing which hasn't been affected in the Mount Freeze cycle, and you can sort of tell because there's actually quite nice snow on top. It's what would call quite chalky snow, and it hasn't really been going through that Mount Freeze crust. What they've got to do is read the snowpack, which is what they call all that snow on the ground. And I think of the snowpack as a thick layer cake. And every time it snows, it adds another layer to the cake. And these layers all have different thicknesses and consistencies depending on what the snow was like when it fell and what the weather's been like since. So actually, pretty stiff slab in here. There's that ice layer from last week after we had that rain event. Right there. Digging back in time. Digging back in time. And as well as ice, he finds an interesting thin layer of snow just below the surface. And you can sort of see how they're bigger grains there. You yep. see that? Yep. Rhyme needle. So what's happened is it started off crystallising up in the air to try and make a snowflake, and it's, it's sort of got like a needly shape to it. What's happened is, in the convection where it's gone back up in the air, pieces of moisture and rime have connected into it, so rather than being quite pointy, it's filled in a lot of the indentations on it. So that little bit of crystal in the air has been rhymed up. Well, so hang on a moment. Rhyme as in... The producer who came from Otago made a show about snow, like in Fargo. It's <laughs> really lame, Katie, but you're quite right. Not that kind of rhyme. He means rhyme as in R-I-M-E. Now you keep tasting things. If you put your tongue on it, what will happen, you can actually feel them really granularly on your tongue. Oh, so that's why you keep licking things. Yeah. So that's that density change with the rhyme needles. So is he actually tasting the snow? Well, he is, but what interests him is the texture rather than the flavour. Mm. OK, well, that makes more sense. So can you just run that past me again? What's happening up in the sky? OK, sure. Winding back. So we started with the snowmaking factory, where water gas stuck to ice nuclei to make baby ice crystals. That then got tossed around like a salad, and they all stuck to each other until they were big enough to start to fall. Right, the deposition phase. Yep, that's the one. But if you remember, this was all happening about 10 kilometres up. Well, they've got a long way to fall. And a lot can happen to them en route depending on how hot or cold it is, how humid, how windy. And one of the things that can happen is rhyming. Gerard, one of our men from the Met Service, can tell us a bit more about that. And then there's also what you call an accretional phase or a rhyming phase. And what happens here is when the temperatures are still below zero degrees Celsius, you can have 
what you call a supercooled liquid water. So water will exist at temperatures below zero degrees Celsius. Without freezing. Without freezing, yeah. So it's called supercooled liquid water. And it, it really needs uh, an object to sort of connect to before it'll turn into ice or freeze. These snowflakes, as they fall down, they'll come into an environment where there's more supercooled liquid water than there was higher up. And it'll collect all this water, which turns to ice on it, which helps the snowflake get bigger. Did you know, Katie, supercooled water can be as cold as minus 40 degrees Celsius and still be liquid? Amazing. And when it encounters something like a snowflake, that supercooled water just snap freezes. It's amazing. I, I have to say, this is changing how I thought water behaved. So we've heard now about the needle-shaped snowflakes. I presume that they come in other shapes and sizes, like those nice star-shaped ones that you see on Christmas cards? Definitely star-shaped. Apparently those are known as dendrites. Then you also get prisms, columns, cups, plates, bullets, needles. I think there's literally thousands of different possible shapes, depending on whether it's minus 10 or minus 15 or minus 20 uh, when they form. So that's a fascinating world in itself, and I know people have studied that by catching individual snowflakes on glass plates and photographing them. Now, I've heard that no two snowflakes are the same. Is that true or false? Well, Eric reckoned thousands of possible shapes, but out of billions of snowflakes that fall every year, I'm sure there are repeats, so probably urban myth. And do we get the starry snowflakes here in New Zealand? Yeah, nah. Sometimes. North America and Europe get heaps of them. New Zealand, not so much. Ah, ripped off. I know. Our experts tell me we've got a maritime climate, so we're warmer and wetter than a continental place like Europe, which is lovely cold and dry. And cold and dry is apparently just much better when it comes to building delicate snowflakes with long branching arms. Plus, of course... When they reach the ground, we've got lots and lots of wind, as we all know, and that gives the snowflakes a good bashing and knocks all the lacy bits off. Now, just before we get into that a bit more, here's one of my favourite things I learned while I was recording this podcast. The vast majority of rain in New Zealand starts life up in a cloud as an ice particle. Most of the precipitation, most of the rain that you see, most of it starts out as snow. It's just by the time it's reached the surface, it's melted to rain. So, the factory up there is churning up lots of snow but most of the time what it's just too warm and it melts and so all we get down here is rain Mm. and it shows how critical temperature is that's why we get snow in winter of course when it's colder and the snow can make it all the way down and of course that's why you get more snow up a mountain than down at sea level because it's colder the higher you go and the colder it is the more snow you get I was wondering about how much snow you get on Ruapehu and Bendy fills me in as we ride up on the chairlift. We're based out at about three metres average. Of course, we measure that around the 2,000 metre mark. Above there, up at the, like, the high noon, you'd expect to see quantities of four to five metres easily up there. We're down the lower elevations, of course, it gets a bit smaller. Around where we are now, we're at about 1,700 metres. We're probably looking at about a metre of snow as a whole. but. It always comes in with wind, so right below us here, this patch in here would easily have two to three metres in it. We're on that ridge line just over there is probably about a metre. So when it comes to snow on the ground here, wind is really important. Wind is massive. 97% or 98% of our snow comes in with wind. In so it. horizontal snow is quite a feature Yeah, it's, it's a very big feature. It is a very big feature. 
So the snow isn't evenly sprinkled across the mountain. 10 centimetres might have fallen, but in one place there's bare rock, and right next door there's a metre deep snowdrift. And it's in a spot like that, on a sheltered slope where snow accumulates, that we're digging the snow pit. So what are you actually doing there with your hole? What, what did you just call it? A snow pit? Yeah, snow pit. It's the proper technical term for it. So we're sussing out what's happened to the snow since it landed on the ground and got blown around, and Bendy needs to know that so he can work out whether it might create an avalanche. What I'm going to do is just go down and just have a look. So... Probably got... He's poking with his finger. Yep, so that's probably one finger, one finger. What he's doing now is he's testing how soft it is. Is it soft enough to poke one finger into? Can he get four fingers in a whole fist or just a knife blade? In this case, one finger is nice and solid. That's all right side up. There's nothing jumping out like suddenly, ugh, with my four fingers in there. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to do an extended column test, which is probably about 30 centimetres. Now what's he doing? He's sawing a vertical column from the back wall of the pit. And if chunks suddenly fall off, then that tells him how stable the snowpack is, or isn't. If something does fall off, it tells him there's a sliding layer or a weak layer, where two levels of that layer cake we were talking about haven't stuck together. I'm going to give it a test now, put certain amounts of energy into it. One from my hand, ten taps. Then from my elbow, 10 taps, and then from my shoulder. So this is a real good test to see how much load it needs and what are the propagation properties in it. So he's having a really good look and feel, poking and prodding and, yeah, tasting, until he understands the snow right down through all the different layers. You've got an entire novel in there. Yeah, just about. What we'll probably start to see is a bit of a temperature gradient when we put the thermometer in it now, just through those layers there. Oh, and another thing he does is take the snow's temperature. Because if the temperature changes really quickly across just a few centimetres, that's bad news apparently, as it creates a kind of weak snow known as faceted. So Bendy starts at the bottom of the pit with the thermometer and works his way up. Yeah, so we've got minus two here. As you see, it's getting colder as you come to the snow surface. Now we're looking at minus five and a half. It's kind of counterintuitive because it's getting colder the closer to you are to the surface. Yeah, exactly. And that's the temperature gradient. Yeah. Cool. Did I hear that one right? It's actually colder at the surface than it is further down. Yep, you heard right. Amazing, eh? That's because the snow's a really good insulator. That surface snow is acting like a blanket, keeping the cold air away. When you think about it, that's why people in the Arctic build igloos and why polar bears hibernate under the snow. It's actually pretty warm when you're tucked away in it. That's how we come up with a lot of the, the decisions we make. Well, nothing's really going on there. Nothing's moving. So the key is, Bendy and the Avalanche team do this over and over again every day in different parts of the ski field, and they always do it exactly the same way. The pit is the same size, the column is the same size, they use the same series of taps, they take the temperature and so on. Right, so when it comes to the science of snow and predicting avalanches, it's, it's all about consistency and repetition. Indeed. And they don't just do it first thing in the morning. They're keeping an eye on the snow all the time because the avalanche risk can change during the day if, for example, the temperature changes. So it might start off as low risk, but it could become a high risk later in the day. Things definitely change throughout the day, but, um, yeah, being maritime, little change can affect the snow. The snow is like taxes doesn't like fast change. Change has got to be a little bit at a time. If it gets shocked with something, 
completely different or a higher tax or a different sort of uh, weather or temperature, it, it, rea- it becomes reactive like we do with taxes. <laughs> well, snow's not alone in that. You know, lots of us don't like sudden change. Or taxes, for that matter. <laughs> no, indeed. But hey, one other thing I want to know, why is snow white? Because it reflects the light. Okay, so that's easy. And avalanches? An avalanche is a movement of massive snow moving down the hill. Why do they happen? They happen usually because of weak layers within the snowpack. And That's what yeah. Bendy was looking for in the snowpack, weak snow that might collapse or slide. And of course this is only going to happen if the slope is steep enough for snow to get some momentum. So a gentle slope won't slide, and actually you're not going to get an avalanche off something that's really steep either you won't get a big build-up of snow there. So what avalanche forecasters say is to look out for anything between 30 to 45 degrees. That's the danger zone. Right, and that zone could be up above you as well, not just what you're standing on? Absolutely. Now, I'm assuming ski fields put all this effort into preventing avalanches. It's obviously a genuine risk for them. It sure is. An avalanche can injure and even kill people. And just at Turoa, there's quite a few places either on or above the ski field that could avalanche. So we're riding the chairlift up, and I'm getting a guided tour of the avalanche paths. Uh, you have quite a few of them? We do there, Alison. So in our books, we've probably got about 120. At the moment, we've just gone past Showoff. This is called Mid-Munga Region. And then we have the Mungafero Headwall up there and Tup's Roll. His real name's Richard, but it's named after him. He was caught in an avalanche there and went off the bluff after he got caught and ended up fracturing his humerus and dislocating his shoulder. So Ouch. Got, yep, he got one named after him. But that's the headwall, and that's a very big avalanche path up there. So if the avalanche team decides that an area is at risk of avalanching, what do they do? Basically, they're going to set it off. Mm. So if it's small, they might ski across it because just their weight alone might trigger it. And, of course, while they're doing this, they make sure they can ski out of danger if they need to. They also have someone watching them and they're wearing safety equipment so they can be quickly found and dug out if necessary. If the potential avalanche is too big and dangerous to do that to, then they use explosives. They have, like, rocket launchers that they can fire Mm. from somewhere safe. Or, if necessary, they'll use a helicopter and drop the explosives from that. And that'll trigger the avalanche. Boom! Off it goes. And, of course, they're going to do this when the ski field is empty. (laughs) Just as well. I was going to ask that. Uh, That sounds like fun, explosives. Okay. and so once they're off and underway, are all avalanches kind of unfolding in the same way? Good question. No. I've discovered they come in two main um, flavours or types. Up here, a lot of the avalanche conditions we see are actually wind slab conditions because it's it's slab conditions that have been made by the wind. Now, depending on that wind, whether it's broken the particles up to really fine pieces and and what it does is it brings them and it tightly packs them into a stiff slab, a lot of times that can be a good thing, but if that stiff slab is sitting on a layer, it's what we call low-density snow, so you... You could think of it like you have a whole lot of concrete blocks that are sitting on eggshells or champagne glasses. Now, once you get that high density on a low density, you suddenly got like the the blocks sitting on top of the eggshells or something like that. And that's usually going to be that layer that's going to go. 
So that's what they call a slab avalanche. And a slab is just like it's like a plane of glass being smashing it with a hammer or something and then that whole plane just coming down and it fractures like a plane of glass where a loose wet sort of builds out a little bit more and is a bit more mushy. Mushy, that's a technical term, isn't it? No, that's, that, that, that's one I've just made up right now. <laughs> the boys will be loving me for it. So usually with a loose snow avalanche, it'll, it'll start off quite small and then start building, 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 bigger, 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 bigger. What happens when a person gets caught in an avalanche? Usually what will happen, depending on what sort of avalanche, if it's a slab avalanche, it'll fracture like a plane of glass. A lot of the times they'll stay on top of it and get mixed up with uh, all the big blocks, which can be very large, which create a lot of trauma. If it's a loose snow avalanche, what will happen is a lot of times they can actually end up buried. But you can also be buried in slab avalanches as well, depending how stiff they are. Avalanches are just a feature of our mountains though, aren't they? So if I'm not a climber or a skier, I don't need to worry about that. Well, actually, the biggest avalanche control programme in New Zealand is on the Milford Road between Teano and Milford Sound. They do lots of bombing there in winter because they can get enormous avalanches that go right across the road, which they're trying to keep open for the tourists. Mm, okay. And of course, avalanches aren't the only problem that snow causes. If you get snow down to low levels, it can block roads, stop farmers getting to their animals. So really, the problem for forecasting snow is just getting the ice down to the ground without it melting. And that's where we get into an interesting situation that to melt an ice crystal takes a certain amount of energy, a certain amount of heat out of the air. So when the first snowflakes are falling and melting, they will cool the air that they're falling through. But more than that, if the air is at uh, humidity that's significantly below 100%, say 60 or 70%, quite a bit of the liquid water that used to be a snowflake will then evaporate into the air. That takes much more heat out of the air, making that air quite a lot colder so that subsequent snowflakes falling from on high are able to get all the way down to the ground. It's kind of like snow creating its own perfect weather, isn't it? And this cold bubble can mean we get snow hundreds, even a thousand metres lower than you'd have predicted from the freezing level. Part of the recipe involves the air being trapped against hills because if you can keep on doing this to the same blob of air, then you can have a really dramatic cooling and um, snow can reach the ground. And that's where we get our heaviest snowfalls uh, to near sea level over farming countries. There's another factor here too, and we talked about it a bit earlier, that New Zealand usually has wet snow, which is heavier. The snow's just a little bit starting to melt, and it enables the snowflakes to sort of crush up much closer together. So the quantity of snow you know, in a handful of uh, stuff is much, much bigger. And to, to a first approximation, a great majority of our snow that gives us grief. It's the wet snow, which is much, much heavier than the light snow. So Eric mentioned light snow there. I take it that's what they call powder. Yep, that lovely, light, fluffy stuff that we don't see very often because it's more of a continental thing. If it's very cold and uh, the snowflakes don't join together so well then you'll get much more air in between individual snowflakes. So when they land on the ground, they may make a much deeper snowpack, but so light that you could walk through it without too much effort, what people sometimes call powder snow. 
Hey, so does it make any difference which direction the weather's coming from? Because surely the snow we get during a southerly storm is quite different to what we get from the north. Spot on. Eric says we have two types of snow weather. One is a cold outbreak where you've got cold air from, if not Antarctica, close by through the entire depth of the atmosphere. And when that happens, you may get snow down to near sea level or actually sea level in the far south of the South Island. But generally the quantity is fairly modest. So that's your southerly outbreak. But from the north, you get an overrunning situation that usually brings much more snow. If you want really heavy snow, then paradoxically you need what we refer to as warm air from further north because it can contain a much larger quantity of water gas. Now if you have a system like a low deepening so that it's pulling air from the north in at mid-levels while a cold southerly goes underneath at the surface, then you have a recipe where the relatively warm air, still with a temperature significantly below zero, that relatively warm air is rising over the cold air and if both lots are being slammed into the mountains by an easterly, then you get much heavier snow than if you had only the air coming from the south. Now, different places in New Zealand would get different amounts of snow, yeah? Yep, and we also mentioned earlier how you get more snow the higher you go. Right, so in theory, the Southern Alps would get the most. Yep, that would be fair to say. But we really don't know how much snow falls in most places because it's hard to measure. The ski fields now, of course, and Niwa is trying to measure it in some other places. They've got 12 snow stations, most of them in the South Island Mountains, where they automatically measure things like how deep the snow is. So what's the aim behind that? I mean, does it matter how much snow falls? Heck yeah. It does matter because most of that snow melts, and that meltwater is really vital. Christian Zamet from Niwa says it's important for the economy. It's mainly the source of water used for irrigation and potentially water supply in some part of the country. We've been demonstrating that the amount of snow falling is impacting the amount of electricity. So there is a direct impact between uh, how much snow is falling and how much electricity is available and the price of the electricity. So there we have it, the complete life cycle of snow. From the snow factory high in the sky, churning out baby ice crystals, down to the ground where snow can morph into something life-threatening, and eventually it melts and powers the hydroelectricity that keeps us warm when it's cold and snowy outside. Right, Alison, let's ski this up. This will be good. On the chalky snow. Thanks, Alison and Katie. That was an episode of the RNZ podcast, The Science Of, produced and presented by Alison Balance and Katie Gossett. Sound engineering for this episode was by William Saunders, and Tim Watkin was the executive producer. Our Changing World is produced by me, Claire Cannon, with help from Ellen Rikers. Our website is at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld, where you can find our extensive back catalogue of hundreds of episodes, and you can sign up to our monthly newsletter. We're also on Twitter and Facebook, where you can find us at RNZ Science. Tēnākoe i mai. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Cannon. Have a great week. Kia pai, tō wiki. 
For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.